Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. And we are live here with another episode of the Wingbeats of the Eastman's Wingbeats podcast. And I have a special guest today, Sean Stahl. Sean, how's it going? I'm doing real good. Real good. Sean, cool. I'm glad. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's good to talk to you and semi finally meet you. You and I share some home ground back in Michigan. Uh, yeah. We were just talking before this started about a road trip that you had taken. That's really cool. But if you guys don't know who Sean is, Sean is co-host and assistant producer of RNTV, and he's a world goose calling champion and just kind of all around goose guru for Rich and Tone Calls. Is that about right, Sean? That sums it up. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like, like I said before, I feel like I know you without ever, ever having met you because about the time I was really getting into it, um, you were kept starting to make a name for yourself down there in Southern Michigan, down in Allegan. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk about those, those formative years. What'd that look like? And I talked to Jim Ronquest, a partner of yours. He talked about his start and how things, you know, talking about scraping things together and making things work on a shoestring and all that stuff. And it seems like I grew up in the UP hunting geese, I got the top end of the migration and you were down there hunting the bottom end of the migration and getting residents too. And yeah. that's a, that's a tough game to get started in. Uh, it is, you know, I was fortunate. Uh, I kind of, you know, I mean, in Michigan, you, you're immersed in hunting with it, you know, there's some, but most of it's big game, hunt, you know, deer hunting, uh, that kind of thing. And, and I, you know, I did that deer hunting, but I shot a deer, I think I was 12 and I shot a deer and, um, there's nothing, you know, what else to hunt? Well, duck season was still on my dad. He grabbed a couple of those, you know, I don't know if you remember those old paper mache style duck because they're pretty, oh, yeah. he grabbed oh, yeah. some out of the roof and said, here, there's a pond down the street, go ahead. And that's back when, you know, you could get turned loose with a couple of dogs and just take <laughs> off and go hunting. But, um, you know, from there, I just, it just kind of, there was something inside inside of me said, you know, I mean, I was always, I grew up a hunter, but never a waterfowler up until I was 12. It's not really grown up, but, you know, there's just something that clicked um, with waterfowl that first time, you know, me and my two dogs and the paper mache decoys. And I had this old herders duck call, the old Vic Glodo metal reed. And I'm sitting down in this pond and, um, you know, I got these decoys. It's two, I don't have waders. There's knuckle brush around the edge and I don't I don't have waders so I can't wait out in the water and all I could do is tie the decoys um, to the to the knuckle brush and throw them out and you know that back then it was you know I mean these is decoys my dad had in the top of the garage and they didn't have weights or anything she I just I don't know what I got for string but I ended up taking bolts out of the drawer and tying them together to make weights and um, old spark plugs and stuff like that, but it's, you know, that shoestring budget, just trying to make do with what you have and learn. And I mean, I was lucky enough to had a couple of teal come in and I, I mean, I water swatted one. I didn't know any better, um, <laughs> but I was just tickled pink. The dog went out and got it. And I mean, went home, cleaned it, made mom cook it up. And I mean, that, I, I, that just kind of lit a fire under me. And I was pretty lucky in the fact that, I mean, you've heard of it. Um, maybe not a lot of people have, but there's a, um, a managed waterfall area right here, uh, 15 minutes from my house where I live right. now. 
Uh, I actually grew up about 20 minutes south of here in a small town uh, named Goebbels. But uh, there's a public, and it's all goose hunting. It's called it's called the Todd Farm. Most people know it as the Fenville Farm Unit. Back in the you know the 70s and in, in early 80s, late 80s, if you wanted to kill or shoot a, uh, a migrating Canada goose, this is before, you know, um, I, I kind of grew up, you grew up in the transition of, uh, you right. know, all the birds were coming from Hudson Bay and they migrate down to the resident geese just building up a population. When I, you know, in my lifetime, the early season wasn't, then it started as an experimental season and now they're everywhere. But so you, in that, back in that, late 70s or 70s and early 80s if you wanted to shoot a canada goose somewhere in the midwest you either went to southern illinois you went to hork and marsh in in uh, wisconsin or a little lesser known area was here in western michigan because we get that same mvp mississippi valley population would migrate the ones that didn't go the bulk of them went through wisconsin to horicon and then on down to southern illinois a smaller percentage of them came through Western Michigan and they would stop and they would feed at the Fenville farm unit, the Todd farm, and they would night roost at the high banks. And at the high banks was all pass shooting. You draw for uh, a post or a zone or a blind and you just go stand in the woods. They get up out of the water and they'd fly over the top and people would shoot out and pass shoot them. And then they'd fly over to the land refuge that we'd hunt all the way around the perimeter. And, um, you know, the the year after I started, I shot my first duck, and the year you know I really wanted to get into this. I was more into this than than the than chasing deer. And my dad's friend, you know, he had a bunch of decoys, and he was into it. And he took you know took me over there, and I mean my eyes are just wide. You you've got twenty five thirty thousand birds sitting out in front of you, and they get up in these big wads, and I mean it just it it further fueled the fire. And I spent. You know, I was 13 then, and I spent the next 10 years of my life hunting there religiously uh, until the um, the hunting began to decline, and then I, and I started hunting outside, and I still would go there, but not as often, and then the hunting gradually got worse and worse. You know, it was mostly for migrating geese there, and then um, the migrants just aren't coming through like they used to, and staging and stopping there, they're getting short-stopped in all these little uh, you know, city parks and sewage lagoons with all the resident right. geese are spreading out throughout the landscape now. So not a lot of birds go over there um, like they used to. There's still some good hunting over there, but not not like it used to. And then I started, you know, getting off into filming and running around the country and doing all that stuff. And it just gets tougher now. You know, I'm gone so much when I come home, you know, everybody, oh, you get to hunt for a living. Well, there's more to hunting for a living than just going hunting every day you got office yeah. stuff you got to do email stuff you got it's just a lot of things you know we got to log footage and shoot interviews and put stuff together and all that so i guess that's the shortest i can make a long story no that's i love that you you're talking about the todd farm my dad tells a story um he grew up just north of where you guys are now about what about two hours i guess yep. that's about how yep. far it is he tells a story back when he was a young man uh, in the 70s, I guess maybe college age, but he was stocking shelves at a local grocery store and kind of make ends meet. Might have been teaching at that point, but I don't remember. I mean, that's not important. What he What is important is 
He drove down there with a buddy of his. They left in, of course, the middle of the night to get there for the draw. Yeah, slept in the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sleep in the car in a parking lot type thing, you know. And and uh, for those of you guys that have done that, you know exactly what we're talking about. If if you haven't, it is. Oh yeah, it's a it's it's a uh, you it's a lottery system, right? Right. You You drive through, they give you a number, and then if there's you know, back back in the in the mid '80s, there would be 250 or better parties show up for. That. I mean, right. I remember over 300 on the weekend sometimes would show up for basically, you know, probably about 30 good spots um, where you really actually had a pretty good shot, and then a bunch of others. But it, it, they could probably only accommodate back then, you know, a hundred groups really. So you you know you go through this draw and you, the draw was at five thirty the door shut so you had to be there before that you had to have your card filled out all that your group show up there then they do a randomized draw and and then that determines the order which you can go in the door and they've got all the tags on the wall and you can pick your spot yeah. you know there were traditionally good spots but then there were also spots that were good based on how they were cutting crops so you know some of the local knowledge helped but yeah that's yeah. I learned a lot public land hunting. You know, this the the style of hunting there is you you literally get a poster a zone, and that poster zone the poster zones go all the way around the land refuge. So, you know, if you're hunting in the next zone beside me, you literally could stand a foot away from me and hunt instead of right. a decoy. So there's growing up and hunting public land kind of shaped how I hunt. In that it's real competitive, and you got to be, you got to outfox the fox next to you, and the bird, you know, the birds that that's out in front of you. So you're calling and competing, not only you know you're trying to call the bird, but you're also competing and calling against the people on either side of you, and even on farther down the line, because there might be one field that that's three quarters of a mile long. The field is, but there may be eight or ten other spreads of decoys in that field that you're that you're you know competing against. Yeah, no, that was, you're exactly right. We, I grew up hunting some, some similar stuff, not quite to the, the level of that, but my dad talks about that trip. They went down and they, they were past shooting. They didn't have anything. They'd never, none of them had ever killed a goose and he shot a goose that day. And that was a big deal. I think the limit at that time was like one bird, you know, and that was a, that was a really big deal. He talks about when you're growing up as a kid, if you heard a flock of geese fly over in the sky, you ran outside to look at them. Yeah. There just yeah. Weren't, weren't the birds that, that it's, which is, now. I mean, you look at some of the younger kids coming up um, and, and hunting and they're everywhere, you know, right. if, if you're, you know, if you're, you know, up, you know, in the Midwest, you, you just, you've grown up around, you know, these young kids have grown up around, they don't, they, they don't know that how it used to be 40 years ago. And, like you said, it was it was pretty tough, right? You know, we always right. had ducks. We always had ducks around, but you know, the geese—that's a, a relatively new phenomenon, really. Yeah, it absolutely is. It was it was a little different for me growing up in the UP because we got the head end of that migration, where you talk about the migration splitting and going half to Wisconsin and half, you know, into the lower peninsula of Michigan. We were kind of at the head end of that funnel where they were kind of the whole UP gets geese. And it was a little bit of that public land stuff, but it was a lot of private. 
And so it was, I grew yeah. up with lots of geese around right out my back door. Like your story about the ducks, that was me with geese. It was like, yeah, here's 12, 12 shells, you know, 12 shell decoys, go out and sit in that ditch and throw them out and shoot geese. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine even just going up there now, like I was telling you before we started recording, my son and I were up there and just looking around and I've hunted, you know, way, way up in northern Michigan back in the in the late 90s. And when we had the three zones, you know, they yep. you have a three zone opener, yep. so we go try to extend it and go up there. Yeah, um, yeah. Here, all the locals hated that, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So you you can come down and hunt our opener with us, but no. Um, but just you, the types of fields that you hunt in the areas that you hunt. Uh, I mean, you know, the UP isn't there's there's a few oat fields around, but most of it's grass hay. You know, and yeah. that stuff that yep. down here in southern, I mean, down here in southern Michigan, you you don't see them in that very often. No. You know, that's the no. first time we went up there and everybody's like, we're going to hunt what? <laughs> so not this grass field. This dairy um, farmer's pasture. Yeah, the pasture is like, just trust me. <laughs> They've got nowhere else to go. They just flew pretty much nonstop, you know, because there's nothing but bush between Hudson Bay. And when they cross Lake Superior, they just, they land and try to fuel on whatever they can find. And, yeah. Yep. just happens to be that had some great shoots and stuff like that too because like you said they're tired they're hungry that's where they want to be you know a yeah. lot of those birds are young of the year and may have never seen a person before you know and <laughs> my goodness they've been running from polar bears and mosquitoes for yeah for exactly they, they show exactly. up there, yeah no it was that that was those were some those formative years really man i tell you and and i remember when I did move to the lower peninsula down by where you are now, the competition was greater. Um, you could still get on back in those days. You could still get on with a handshake and a smile on a lot of places. Yeah. That's getting harder. Right. Yeah. Right. But it was still, you had to be the first one there. You know, I remember more than once you farmer would be like, Oh yeah, that's fine. You can, you can go out and hunt that field if you want. I don't care. Well, there's four other groups of guys that have showed up, so that have asked permission. So you know, you're there at two in the morning setting up decoys and for a morning yeah. for a feed shoot, you know. But yeah, good old days, man. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Definitely makes you pay attention to all the little things and all the little details that make you successful on those, you know, yeah. today. And you know, and I think that's. I always preach, you know, when people, how do you do this? How do you do that? And first off local knowledge usually trumps everything i want to know what's working there at that time but i also want to know like hunting the public ground i could always see you could see when i was hunting a todd farm you could always see at least four to six other spreads if not more and you could always see what they had out and you could see if what they're doing was working and a lot of times i found you know when those days when not everybody was shooting them that if you could be different than them, right. than that, than that same mousetrap that everybody else had set out there, um, and what you, you know, what they've conditioned the birds to avoid, if you could do something a little bit different, whether that was, you know, calling, making a wall of sound, or if it was making no sound, or if it was using, if, if, you know, when I, I remember back in the the late '90s at the Todd Farm. There were two people that had homemade trailers that they put on top. They were like four by eight in size. It's a sheet of plywood, and then they ripped one in half and put it on the ends. 
um, and put that on top. They made these little boxes and put them on top of uh, boat trailers. They take their boat off and they put this on top. There were two people with those and nobody had a cargo trailer. And in 1997, I went and bought a 6x14 cargo trailer and tandem axle, all the works, filled that thing up with, with Bigfoot decoys and outlaw and real geese silhouettes and rolled into there. And everybody's looking at me like I had a third eye in the middle of my forehead. Like, what are you doing? You don't need this. Because up until then, there's, there's these two homemade trailers. People would throw whatever they could get in the trunk of their car, in the right. backseat of their car. And one guy used to drive a Jaguar in there to hunt. And he put outlaw, he'd, he'd fill the backseat up with outlaw silhouettes. Um, you know, in the back of a pickup truck. And it was, to me, it was all about trying to find something and be different. I, you know, the, the calls of choice back then were big rivers and old 800s. I had, I had me, uh, Tim Grounds half breed and I had a trailer full of decoys and it didn't, I mean, not to be cocky or nothing like that, but it didn't matter where, where we set up on that farm. It didn't have to be a good spot because we could make a wall of sound and we had a huge decoy spread and nobody else was doing it. And, and we were really, really productive. And that lasted just a few years and people started getting trailers and people started getting bigger spreads. And, and now it's kind of the opposite. You got to do some different things when the birds get stale, because you go there now and one group of hunters in one zone may have three trailers, right? You know, that they're putting out there. So, yeah, it's it's kind of come full circle in that. No, that's hilarious. Some of the some of the names you were just throwing out there. Yeah, that that takes me back, man. Because I mean, mm-hmm. it was the same. It was the same way. I remember when I first started hunting with uh, silhouettes. I think I think I had the real geese silhouettes. Yep. But I had the Tim Grounds half breed call, you know, and blew a big river long honker for years and years. Yep. A lot yep. of geese with it, you know, but man. Yep exactly the same results you're talking about when, when you, you know what's funny is we the, the the one year we were up in up in the up hunting and my buddies we saw i think it was a 90 1994 outlaw decoys used to come out with a video and in 1994 they came out with a, a, a vhs <laughs> that's dating us <laughs> but a vhs they came out with that and tim grounds was in there and he was standing in the park and down there in marion i believe it was in marion illinois and he blew, he had the, the guide's best, which was his flute, variable right. tone honker, which was the guide's best with a little muffler on the end, and a half breed. And me and three buddies were sitting there watching, and they're like, that variable tone honker, that's awesome. We got to get that. And I said, no, that half breed is where it's at. That's what we've got to get. You know, and uh, so they got the variable tone honkers, and I got the half breed. And man, you could just make some noise, and not everybody was doing that. And that's what made it so cool. But it kind of goes into, you know, we kind of were just discussing a little bit of, and I was talking to John and, and Jim, we're actually doing, actually we're shooting an interview for, we have a 15th anniversary. We've been on the air that long, 15th anniversary oh. episode coming up. It's Has it been long. that long? Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. 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 I don't think it's that long. And then I look in the mirror and I said, yeah, it's been that long. <laughs> but but uh, we're just talking and it's, it's funny, you know, John's really into the history stuff and, I guess I thought I was until I started watching some of his stuff and following, you know, going around the country and filming things with him. 
a lot of the things I just I didn't really I mean I would I didn't know as much about history of the sport as I thought I did. And the thing with history is you got to know where you come from to know where you're going. That, that's why I think history is important and you know whatever it is in life. But the more you start looking at the history of our sport, the more you, I realize that the 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 sport of waterfowling isn't so much an evolution as it is a revolution. And I did stories and talks and stuff on this, but that we don't progress on a linear scale. The, the, the types of things we do, the methods we use, uh, we more or less go in a revolution. It's what works today is kind of what works 15, 20 years ago. Right. Layout blinds today aren't as near as successful as they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago when they first yeah, started coming yeah. up. Guys are starting to lay out in their spread. You know, they're covering up with decoys. They're using panel blinds. They're hunting from edges. Uh, guys are now starting to go back and use silhouettes again. You know, right. and it's all about these birds get conditioned smart. Then we try to adapt and react to that and change and do things. But I find it funny that, you know, we're using some of the some of the uh, products and things have improved slightly because of manufacturing processes, techniques, um, different materials and stuff like that we have available to us. But by and large, like we're talking about silhouettes and, you know, I, I made back in the late eighties, I made, I, I wanted decoys, but I didn't, I mean, I was 14 years old working at the corner grocery store. I had only so much money to spend on, you know, decoys. And I had a dozen carry light Aquavac uh, floater goose decoys. I had a dozen of the one piece, the they were kind of the half shell carry light full bodies. They, yep, the yep. bottom was cut out and you had the spreader bar. And then my dad, he worked at GM and he got the, you know, they, they'd have scrap plywood and he'd bring it home for me. So I would make silhouette decoys out of scrap plywood. They, some of them are three quarters of an inch thick, you know, just, I mean, oh, wow. heavy. But I had like, <laughs> but I had like 60 of them you know, and that's what I would use. And I turned 16 and, you know, we'd drive around with my buddies. That's what we used. You know, we had the 60, these silhouette decoys that I painted. I had three tones, black, uh, black and white, and then gray on the breast. And then, you know, some of them, I, I laugh, you know, cause you see some of the, um, there's a, some decoys coming out now. They're, they're uh, an actual picture silhouette on one side of a goose and then black on the other. I've got, I've got plywood decoys that I made back in the eighties like that, that had, you know, were black on one black and white on one side and then, then, you know, Brown, gray, black and white on the other. Um, and then I painted some of them, there would be some snow geese, handful of snow geese would show up on the Todd farm and I would paint one side of the, the decoy white and the other side, black and white kind of deal. So it's just, it's, it's just cool to see, you know, a lot of the things that we do in our sport, never go out of style for very long They're, they always seem to want to come back in there you know silhouettes today are kind of like the bell bottoms of yesterday i guess <laughs> that's a good that's a good way of looking at it because man yeah. it seemed like seemed like when i first started using them they were just wicked deadly you, know, you talk about hunting in those pastures and things mm -hmm. and you set them at different angles and you could hide in them we mm -hmm. were laying out we were laying out without layout blinds we were laying out in those things you know, in the, in the mid nineties in them and just 
hammering geese and guys are like, how can you, you know, guys are used to hiding in tree lines and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, did you man, ever hunt out of, did you ever hunt out of the, uh, the goose chairs? We did. We did. Yeah. We had a handful of those. We had a yeah. camp. We had, it was, we just called it goose camp, but we had a group of guys that's, that started going up to the Cini area and hunting yep. that big wildlife refuge up there yep. while hunting, yep. hunting south of it around a little town called Germfask and some of the, yep. some of the dairy farms and things around there. And that was a big deal that that's similar to Allegan. And then it's got, you know, yep. lots and lots of tradition because it's a, traditional stopover for those migrators but we had a group of guys there since uh, you know since probably the 1930s 1920s and then you know everything went downhill and it started back up again after world war ii and we even hunted out of the same cabin that was built in the 1920s it was cool so lots of tradition but yeah we we use those goose chairs there we had the farm that we that we hunted on a lot, the the landowner would put out four big round bales, you know, yeah. edge to edge. So you had like a clover yeah. leaf of bales, yeah. and you had a hole in the middle, and you could hide around the edges too. We hunted out of those, but man, after about two or three days of gunning out of those, those birds got pretty wise to them. So we <laughs> started always, looking in the spread. I always felt when I was hunting out of them goose chair, you know, I mean, people aren't familiar with it. It's just a it was a super mad goose decoy. That would flip over the top of you, and you had this little backrest chair, low pro, like a beach chair style chair that you'd sit in. So your legs are kind of hanging. I always felt like I was playing peekaboo with these things. Like you can't see me, you can't see me, but yeah, here's my whole, yeah, yeah but here's my whole bo- lower body just hanging out. Yep. But yeah, yep. they, it they were weird. successful. It and I've got buddies that that. Well, in the southeastern side of Michigan, that they still have them, and some days they'll pull them out and use them. Yeah, it's, I think it goes back to that cycle of what you're talking about. You know, yeah. uh, the birds get what well, you're talking about. Birds that can live a live a pretty long time. You know, in the as, as an animal goes, that geese mm-hmm. live a long time. Yeah, and, Canada goose. I shot a the oldest banded goose. Uh, was a minor, but the oldest um, federal band that I shot was that I've shot. I think he was 13 years old. I shot him right here, about two miles from my house, on the river in the late season, and it was actually banded at the Sini Wildlife Refuge. No I mean, kid. when I saw that, you know, when you bring up Sini, I mean, I remember you know being up in the UP on vacations and stuff with my family, parents when I was a kid, and that was like when we stopped there. I mean, my eyes were just you know, big because so you cool. you read about Sini and you know and opening the the state you know waterfall regulations and seeing the different zones and I mean they had I want to say that Western UP had like a twenty five thousand bird quota for a few years yeah back when they had the quota system and stuff and so that was just always kind of one of those bucket list type places that I wanted to visit and then when I you know I was up there. Um, in the summertime and, and seen them when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. And then 10 years later, I shoot one that I, that was 11 years old. And I mean, heck who knows, it could have been one that I seen, you know, when we were driving around there and walking around. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's super cool. I, you know, I know what you mean. I've got, I've got one band that was banded in, I want to say it was banded in the Horicon mm-hmm. um, and it was banded as an adult. And it was like, I want to say 16 years old and it was banded as an adult. 
That's an old one. Who knows how old that bird yeah. was? Yeah. You know, it's got a big groove worn in it, you know, and it hardly, yeah. you can barely read the numbers on it, but uh, yeah. that's just cool. And you imagine how much those birds see over the course of their lives. And, you know, you get down and hunt that country in the lower peninsula where you are. I remember when we first moved down there trying to take our UP tactics down there and we got our butts kicked, <laughs> you know, for quite a bit until yeah. we adapted and changed things. It seemed like those birds had come in to about 100 and then they'd flare off. You know, they'd spot you, see something. But it you was know, it's almost yeah. like killing those residents that had been there forever in those late seasons. That late season, man, those birds. Yeah. I, I giggle, you know, people, all them, you know, you're hunting them resident birds or them early season and they're so, you know, they're easy and the, they might be the first day or two, but once right. you figure out they're getting hunted. Um, they're pretty tough and it doesn't matter what animal you're hunting. If, right. if the playing field is level, they're going to win it, it, every time because they Absolutely. live in the land. You know, it's that they want to eat and they want to survive to the next year. And so they can breed and carry on the, the species. That's what they're, you know, that's what they're bred to do or that's what they're alive to do, I guess. But so you need, as a hunter, we need a factor in our favor. We need a good hatch. So we need a lot of juveniles that aren't very smart and haven't seen it. You know, we need some sort of a weather factor, you know, wind, rain. You know, the, the toughest things can be is like in, in the regular goose season around here, you get in October, November. And if we don't have a new push of birds coming oh, in, they, look, they know where the safe zones are. They know where they can go out and feed, and they know where the hunters hang out. And if if there's a bad hatch this year, or you know the weather gets stale, uh, you know say it just it, it, high pressure system comes in, the wind's not blowing, it's warm, they're not going to fly right away. It just it makes it really tough. And unless we get some of those factors in our favor, they get really difficult to hunt. I, yeah, I've experienced the exact same thing. And, and even those early season birds, you know, I think that season in the lower peninsula lasts what, 15 days. And, and we, it's had, up to 30. Now we get the whole month now, oh, man. basically. You're, getting yeah. first, you're actually getting probably the first wave of some migrators. Well, we get, you're getting the molt migrants, which are the, right. the, the resident birds that are born around here. They're non-breeding or unsuccessful breeders. They go up to Hudson Bay and they start coming back. Um, you're getting that for sure. Yeah, we're getting some of the other, um, some of the other birds too, at that time later in September. But yeah, September for here in Michigan, Southern Michigan, your first three days are the best. First days the the, the best. Yep. So it's like good, it's like best, better, good, and that, and then it just falls off from there until we get that first north wind and the push comes and get some fresh birds that don't really know where they're supposed to be. And maybe get out of bounds or, you know, and being as far north as we are, we're really in the first, you know, I mean, the, the ag really starts central lower peninsula. Right. And, and then goes down. So we're really the first main ag that these birds are going to see. And we've got, and being this far north, we get molt migrators that will come, that were born and raised and trying to get back to all parts of Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky. Uh, Illinois and that kind of stuff. So we get a lot of their birds pushing through 
Um, so that helps supplement and, you know, give these birds that aren't familiar with the area and gives us the upper hand for at least a couple of days. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Well, one of the things that you, one of the things that you kind of, that you're very good at is teaching, teaching people tactics, teaching people calling those things. You get into those tough bird situations like that second week of those of that early season. You know, you're you're obviously scouting and you're looking for birds, but what what is something you could pass along for guys that are find themselves in that situation that might might make help them make a difference? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. Obviously, being on the X is of the utmost important when times are tough. It's harder to run traffic and talk birds into giving up if. You know, if you're in a refuge situation, it's a lot easier. If you got a lot of birds flying over, it's easier to run traffic. But, you know, if you've only got around town here, if you only got a couple hundred birds around town and they're stale and they're tough, um, running traffic is real difficult. You've got to get on the X. Um, number two is is pick your spots. Uh, just because, you know, if you've got an X field and you got it locked down, doesn't mean you need to go hunt it the next day. If right. you look at the weather and it's supposed to be, uh, say, no wind, sunny, warm, but in two days from now it's supposed to be spitting snow or a little bit of rain, going to have some wind, a lower ceiling, go then. Pick your spots. You know, um, Third thing is manage your spots, with, and it goes hand in hand with that, is manage your spots. You know, it's getting more and more. We talked about you can't just go knock on a door, right? And you've got so you've got so many places you line up during the course of the summer and fall and, that you can hunt. But manage your spots. If if you get birds start showing up into your field, you got 25, 30 birds start showing up in your field. I won't unless I'm pressed for a spot and leaving or leaving town or not going to be around for a while. I'll let that build up. I'll let that yeah. go. Let somebody else go hunt the field down the road and blow that deal up and give your spot a day or two and it'll build and wait for the weather to get right and pick your spot and go in. The other tip that I give people is, is pay attention to what's working locally and try to be opposite or try, try to do what's working if what's working. But if guys are having trouble, you know, back in the day uh, when I used to be able to do a lot of hunting around here, everybody had five dozen Bigfoots they throw in the back of their truck, you know, so I knew that if, if things got tough, we had to go big, um, big or just a handful, three, four, you know, six, seven decoys right. in a field. Just do something different. And and I think we all fall into this pattern, and, and I find myself falling into it, is that, you know, what's the first thing you do when you see geese? Geese, geese, and, you know, get in, get in, get in, call, 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 flag, flag, flag. You know, we all do the same thing, and they get used to, you know, these local birds. They get used to getting called at. They used used to getting flagged at, and if you just keep your call in your pocket, let them fly by, um, and then hit them with a couple of notes, something like that, and hit them with a couple of notes, hit them with a flag, and when they're flying away, they can see almost 270 degrees, but they see the best out here, you know. so if you get them just past you and hit the flag, get them, you know, hit, hit some quick spit notes and, and double clucks and hit the flag. And it looks like maybe a goose broke off and started landing, create some confusion in the flock. And then you can get them working and, and try to get them to come in. But it's just doing, doing something that's different. 
Um, so there's a, there's a lot of little things that you can do to answer your question. No, I, that's why I ask because I, I've kind of the same, the same thing. One of the things that we used to look for back in that country by the second week were little tiny out of the way ponds that were in the woods. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, you'd think it's just a duck hole because it's pretty, they'd be pretty tight. Mm-hmm. But man, it, more than once we would find those birds. They wouldn't go back to a roost after their morning feed. They'd want to go someplace and loaf in a little spot like that. And then they'd go back to feed and then they'd fly out after dark to the, to their roosts. Man, yeah. we used to hammer birds in little spots like that with no decoys. You just hide yeah. in the trees and call a little bit and they where they wanted to be. It goes back to what you were saying about on the X, but you almost got to watch those birds go into places like that to know that they're there. Yeah. Yeah. They go on, they go into hiding. Yep. And it they might were... be, in the, it might be in the city park. But... Right. But it might be those little, those little off the wall, you know, out of the way places. These little fields that are, that are secluded by, by woods that you can't see. And that's, I mean, back in the, way back when I used to go get the, you used to go to the the local um, soil conservation district and get the U.S. Geological Survey books, and they're about this this thick, and it would go through and it'd give you a topographical map of your county and show you the different soil makeups and and the high and low spots. But it also gave you aerial photos, and I used to do a lot of scouting that way. But I mean, now you've got things like Onyx and Google yeah. Maps, and you know you can pop up and there's a lot of scouting goes on that way, and there's also a lot of scouting that goes on on social media, and that's um, <laughs> there's a lot of social media scouters out there. Boy, it's funny. You gotta watch. You know, you take a picture after a hunt or during a hunt, and you post it up and. I'll get three or four hits and like, oh yeah, you're at so-and-so's place. I'm like, how did you know that? Well, you see that silo in the background yeah. and this stuff? Like, oh my God. Yeah. You really got to oh, watch that now. That is crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. We, we have that problem out here because so much of the landscape is highly recognizable. Um, yeah. A lot yeah. of what we have is mountain mountains. features. Yeah. 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 Mountains yeah. in the background. And yeah. yeah and and if, if you get along with pretty much everybody that's hunting in the area, that's cool, you know, and, and everybody's got their spot or they've got permission to hunt something you don't. And, and that's, that's fine. It all works out. But yeah. You know, I had a, I had a pro staff director one time tell me, for that that handled is it was a major camo company and at the time and they and they said she was just i was just talking to her and she says you know you waterfowlers just can't seem to get along you guys are the rowdiest bunch and blah 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 blah. oh my dog's coming up here to sit in the lap with me oh, uh, no, she said you guys are the rowdiest bunch you guys can't you guys none of you guys can get along i mean honestly we are um i i always try to take the high road, especially, you know, hunting, hunting public and younger, I used to get bad, but, uh, our strength is in numbers of, of hunters and we all got to find some common ground, but man, we, as waterfowlers will cut each other's throats. We try to beat each other to the door to knock on it. We try to lease a spot from underneath somebody. Uh, we try to get in between somebody. I mean, we're never happy for the, the next guy your next door neighbor going and shooting him and you didn't 
Um, and, and that's goes back into the teaching and the stuff. And I mean, I try my best to, to help anybody and anybody, anybody and everybody out. Um, and I try to be happy for, you know, the guy that's next to me hunting and shooting birds because, you know, some days I shoot a limit, some days they do. Um, but, uh, you know, and, in helping people, you know, and trying to, you know, people ask questions, want to know what I know. I think I learn as much teaching people as they probably get from me. You know, I learn maybe there's a different way of, you know, trying to do this or uh, a different tactic that maybe I need to spend some more time learning about uh, or, you know, a, a new, a new method or a new area uh, because I've always heard a goose is a goose is a goose no matter where. Well, they're, they're different. Um, they're different shapes. They're different sizes. They sound different. They're just like people and they get regionalized in how I would hunt birds here. Isn't necessary. Isn't, I know for a fact, isn't how I would hunt them up in the UP or in the type of, uh, you know, field or environment that I'd hunt them in. So, um, you just pick up and, and the more you can pick up from other people, the more well-rounded you are and, and the bigger your toolbox is that you can pull from when you need to. Uh, yeah, Jim and I, Jim Ronquest and I were talking about the exact same thing, right down to the toolbox quote. Yeah, That's something you guys probably kick around quite often, but um, I completely agree. You know, if you're, if you're completely closed off and, and closed minded, mm-hmm. that's as good as you're ever going to get is where you are right now. And, but, and, but in the flip side of that though, just by having a big toolbox, that's the, some of the, some of the, like I always call my decoy trailer, my toolbox. Cause that's, that's what I primarily hunt. I mean, I, you know, growing up in Michigan, like, you know, we grow ducks and geese. Right. But I, you know, so I grew up around ducks and geese and I love hunting either or, but working for Rich and Tone and working with two other world duck calling champions, I, you know, I kind of get, you know, pigeonholed to the, to the goose guru guy, but but I love I love to 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 duck hunt just like the next guy. But the the toolbox thing, you know, the more tools that you have and you throw in your toolbox, that's great as long as you one know how to use that tool, and number two, you know that you don't use a screwdriver when you need to use a hammer. You know, and I think that so much people fall into that pattern of because you've got it means you have to use it. Well, no, you don't. And that's, you know, I, I, I did a deal the other day about an early season spread that I put in my trailer and that spread of decoys is about, let me think, I mean, is about 20, 15, 25, 30, 32 dozen decoys, 32 dozen Canada goose decoys that I have in my trailer to be able to hunt in the early season. Well, people hear that and they're like, you don't need 32 dozen. No, I don't. I don't need 32 dozen decoys. But the key is I've got 10 dozen full bodies. I've got 15 dozen uh, silhouettes. I've got five dozen wind socks and I've got two dozen sleeper shells. And I also have room to throw in floaters if I need them. But all that is, is a toolbox. And every carpenter in the world knows that he does not use every tool in his toolbox every day, but I have it there at my disposal, at my disposal, if I need it for that day. So that, you know, with that toolbox thing is just because you have the tool doesn't mean you need to use it. And sometimes we as hunters, we fall into that pattern. I've got them and I use them. 
And I, you know, I found myself is supposed to supposedly a pro. I found myself falling into that. You know, we go, uh, we go to Manitoba in October and go goose hunting. Well, I could fit 24 dozen full bodies in the front of my trailer and they all had to be stacked in there a certain way in rows like cordwood every other way to be able to get 24 dozen full bodies in there. But that's, well, by gosh, that's what we did. And when we go there and we hunt, if you only wanted to pull out six dozen, well, everything else fell down inside the trailer and then you had to rip everything out, restack it up. So we found ourselves every day putting 24 dozen decoys out. Well, what happens when you're hunting honkers, they need space. If you look at honkers in a field from the road or from ground level and you look across them, you look, man, they look like they're stacked up in there. Right. But I promise you, if you go, if it's during, you know, in the, in the regular early season, if you pro, if you fly over them with a drone, which I've done and studied them, I get, I mean, I've, I've got geese. I'll have upwards of a couple hundred birds in my backyard here the whole month of September. And I study them. I fly the drone over them and I take it, you know, go other places, fly the drone. They'll maintain a distance apart of roughly three to five feet. And, you know, so they want some spacing. And amongst families, they'll space each other out further apart from family. You know, one family will stay kind of a little ways away from the other family. And by hunting with 24 dozen decoys, I'd run out of spaces to put decoys. So I started putting them on top, like, you know, a foot apart. Well, now you're starting to look like a lesser spread and you're less inviting to honkers. It just doesn't look natural. So, you know, I told myself I'm going to cut back on a number of decoys I'm putting in here, you know, full bodies. I'm going to put other tools in here and I'm going to be more conscientious of this. And like with a decoy spread, I always tell people it's just like a Walmart parking lot. It's just like the, the seats at a movie theater. When, you know, when you drive into a parking lot, what are you looking for? You're looking for the best place to park. And for some people that's right up by the front door and some people it's, it's further out back, but so you pull in there and you start looking for a place. Well, what are you looking for? You're looking for empty spots, right? Where somebody isn't, you know, like a movie theater, you're looking for an empty seat. So I like to think of a decoy spread like that, wherever I want the birds to land, I want to leave empty parking spots or empty seats for them where I don't want them to land. That's where I put, you know, a decoy in that, in that parking space. So, you know, and that's what I tell them to do um, with a decoy spread. And I found myself, I wasn't leaving enough parking spots for these birds. And that's why they were, that's why they're landing shorter, landing wide, you know, right. You fall, you just, you just start, you know, you, sometimes you got to just step outside that, that box and look and say, okay, dummy, <laughs> you know, you know better than this, but okay. You get stuck in a rut, you know. Yeah. I mean, ever, yep. everybody does the Start same doing thing. The same thing over and over again. Yep. Yep. No, I've I know exactly what you mean. You see it out. You see it here. You, know, you said a goose is a goose. They are and they aren't. You know, yeah. and they they all need space, like what you're saying. And I don't know how many times we've had the first couple groups, and you go didn't quite do it, and you're like, hmm. Yeah. And you go out and start looking around. You're like, ah, we're we don't have enough room. They don't have yeah. enough room to sit down. So. Yep open it up, move stuff behind you, do whatever you got to do to shift them around and get them in front of the guns. But so mm-hmm. uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to switch away from the kind of where we're going. Um, 
and I don't, I didn't mean to pigeonhole you as the goose guru. Uh, I, but that's fine. I, I, I'm, I'll talk about it all. Too, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I get one of the questions that I get pretty regularly on, um, some of the some of the videos we've done and and different blogs that we've put out are, you know, I'm going back to that Tim Grounds half breed goose call. Those were the first kind of the, that was the first short read goose call that I had. And it is yeah. a very different short reads are different to blow than, than, yeah, than an animal. Yep. anything else. And they kind of, it took me a while to get used to, to that. And now I can't blow a flute. I'm so used to blowing a short read that I struggle to blow a flute. It's, it's, it's the same ingredient, but it's a different recipe. Right. And, and, and I'm, I, Kind of at that time when I got the the half breed, you know, I was blowing an old eight hundred, and I had uh in a Ken Martin with the resonant cavity calls, and I had just kind of started flirting around with blowing a flute in contest, and I picked up that half breed and I was like, what is going on? And like, and like every waterfowler out there, I guarantee you, has bought a duck call or a goose call, got it, blown it. It didn't work. They either threw it in a drawer or they took it apart and tried to retune it because, you know, the thing's not tuned right, right? You know, it's not it's it's not the, it's not the operator, right? Um, but the half breed I didn't, and every call up to then I had done that with, but the the half breed I did not. But I literally what I did is it, I sat myself in a room, basically locked myself in my bedroom for about a day and a half and came out for uh, sodas, chips, and go to the bathroom. Until I figured out how to blow this thing. And it's just, and how I, you know, try to explain to people, it's it's the same ingredients, but a different recipe, a different amount. You know what I mean? It's, you're, you're not kind of pushing the air in like you would a flute. You're kind of banging the air in, you know, huffing it into it, coughing right. it in. Um, you know, it, it, it all takes forward air pressure, mouth cavity size, and, and tongue position to uh to get it to operate so um but yeah they're definitely and you know and says you know after i had sat myself down there i basically said do not blow any other call because all it does is mess you up and the funny thing is i learned to blow that and then when i went to pick up a flute it was like whoa i forgot how to do this but the muscle memory you know the muscle memory you know comes back in but i always tell people if you're transitioning from a flute which most people aren't these days they're growing up with a short read but if you're transitioning from a flute, put the flute away. Don't even try it. Start out in the off season when you're you're not planning on going hunting, and sit down and figure it out. And there's so much available. I mean, when I first started, there really wasn't anything. There was this guy on the '94 Outlaw video named Tim Ground said, "You go like this," and you're like, you know, and sure. that's really all there was. There wasn't an instructional, and that's why I, you know, right around 2000, I came out with what I call uh, honker talk uh instructional on dvd because from michigan i mean i was in an out-of-the-way place you basically back then all the goose callers were either in maryland or down in southern illinois and unless you wanted to get in the in the vehicle and drive seven eight hours it was hard to get instruction and and that's why i thought that you know it was a good time to to help people out you know and, and learn this kind of stuff but nowadays i mean you can get you can get on YouTube, you know, you can call somebody, you can you get on Skype with somebody. I do that with people uh, to get them, you know, kind of learning the basic things. So what, what are some of those basic things? Cause I know, like I said, 
There are guys. I don't think very many people start with flutes like you and I, like no. you and I did back in the day. No. Everybody grabs a short read now, but a lot of guys still they pick it up and they can't make it work. They can't turn it over. You know, they they yeah. They're... I it's 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 hard to do um, without a call in my hand right now, and I, I probably should have thought about that. But you know, I did a deal on YouTube uh, called Short Read One Hundred One. It's under my name. And it's basically a five-minute tutorial to teach you the basics of how to present the air into the call, get the low note where it just goes, and you say the word like who. And I hate to use reference words because people's brains get fixated on the reference word and not the actual air and the sound coming out of the call. But you make that low note, and then you got to sharply increase the air, bringing your tongue up. And I don't use the tip of my tongue for probably 90% of the notes I use. I use the middle or my larynx. But you got to bring that air up real fast. And you say the word like ick or ish, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Instead of a flute, it's more like in a short read is whoosh, to get it to break over. And what I do in that instructional is I teach him to make that note that whoosh. And that'll teach you to learn where that, to feel that break from that low note to the high note. And once they can do that, I tell them, you know, in, if I'm doing instruction with somebody, hey, do that 10 times in a row. When you can do that 10 times in a row, you come back to me and we'll work on the next thing. And what I, what I teach people to do that with is, you know, don't use any hands on the end of the call. Don't try to put any back pressure on it. Because if you can properly operate a short reduce call, you can do it holding it like you're taking a drink or, uh, of a Coke or something, but no back pressure on the end, you can run a short reduce call and make it make notes. And it's going to sound like a party horn, but it's going to break over into that from that high note to low note. And it's going to make all those sounds. And then I'll teach them to bring in their their primary hand. And for me, it's the left hand. I'm left-handed. Bring in your primary hand and do that same note 10 times in a row. And once they could do and by just bringing in that offhand, you're amazed at what it changes uh, the sound and the feel and people will mess it up. But I always tell them, if you mess it up, back up, take your fingers up, take your hand, pull it back off the call, make those 10 sounds, do it again. And you'll learn that a lot of people choke the call off too much and they're, right. they're not letting it breathe. And then I'll teach them to bring in their, their offhand and do the same thing. And if it, and again, if it starts making squealing out, it's not, if it's, it's locking up, vapor lock, doing something other than what they, the sound they want, Back up, take your hand off, then bring it back in slowly, and you'll figure out that these short reads, you really, for the most part, unless you're trying to get in some real low sound, you need to let them breathe. Because like I said, you can blow them without your hand on the call. It's your hands that make it go from sounding like a kazoo to more of a goosey tone, and you can get multiple geese, depending on what you're doing with your hands and your forward air pressure. And in the process of that, I left out voice inflection. I don't teach voice inflection right away because it's just one more thing you got to worry about. Sure. So first you're just blowing clear. It's just, whoosh. Well, that's the sound I'm making will actually produce voice inflection because um, <clears throat> voice inflection really is just, it's not a lot of guys will just, they try to go <clears throat> with their throat and you can make that sound somewhat. Okay. But more or less, it's just more like you're humming. You just say like the word, Ooh, whoosh, whoosh. And that, ooh, just that vibration in your throat will cause that reed to vibrate and give you the, the proper voice inflection you need into that call.
That's interesting you say that because I'm I'm a hummer <laughs> or growler. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm guilty of that. You know, it's, yeah. the you, growl you get those will... you get those habits. You know that you like, yeah. I did the same exact yeah. thing you did. I picked that picked that half breed up and I couldn't blow it. And I finally same thing, man. Locked myself in the room and I just learned how to use it. Yeah. And then graduated to different calls. You know, went through went through the foils phase. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah everything you know i mean and now i don't i don't really know but the same thing it, i i still i find myself growling in, into that call when i don't need to you know yeah. and a lot of times too um if i'm trying to run a camera or run my phone i do find myself calling with one hand yep and i've yep. and okay. i have found on some of our later birds our birds are a lot of them are pretty high pitched because they're not, mm -hmm. you know, they're they're not lessers, but they're not honkers, you know. I don't and have any. They respond yeah. to that high pitch call pretty well. I don't. I mean, I'm. I don't have any science other than what I see in the field, and by and large, in most weather conditions, other than a high pressure, no wind, a higher pitch style call is going to travel further, farther. It's funny. I'm not laughing funny, but it's 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 odd that you can hear a goose a lot better than a goose can hear a goose call. So their their voices resonate and carry upwind, downwind, further than what ours do. And I tell I I challenge people this all the time that think that oh you know I me personally I calling is important calling can be the key of shooting 40 yard 50 yard birds as opposed to 10 or 15 yard birds it can be that last you know deal on traffic hunts it can be very you know hey you know you're trying to tell them that this is where the party is sure uh, but calling um they just don't hear calling like we think we do they do if you get in a in a Go outside with a group, couple couple of your buddies. You know, I tell people, go outside with a couple of your buddies on a windy day with a video camera, at least two people, or at least two people, so one person can walk 200 yards downwind, and you take a call and then have somebody staged in one area with a call and a flag and have them flag and videotape this, flag and call, and then go, you know, on a, you know, a, a quartering to the wind and then right beside you on a, on a wind and then go upwind to you totally. And the goose calls are highly directional and they're going to travel a lot further downwind than they are going to be upwind. And if you're in a 20, 25 mile an hour wind and you don't have any, and you're in a wide open space with nothing to make that call echo and you've got geese 200 yards upwind to you, good chance is they're not going to hear you. They're, they're not going to hear a goose call. And you blowing a goose call is, is not going to help out one bit, but maybe you picking up that flag. Because I tell people, you call two different ways. You call visually and audibly. You're calling visually with the decoys that you're using. You're calling visually with a flag that you're using. And you're calling audibly with a goose call. So you got to make sure you use the right calls in the right situation in the right scenario. And that's why sometimes I'll bulk up with decoys running traffic if I know they're going to be running a pattern upwind of me. And I want to say, you know, hey, here we are, you know, and get them to take a look. And a lot of times, you know, we think that, you know, I used to blow in contests a lot. 
I mean, I was really, really successful in calling contests when I was blowing. And it's you're blowing to pe- you're calling people, or in a field you're calling birds, and you got to give them what they want to hear when they want to hear it, right? To be successful. And I hear you know some of these people they they'll make up notes and they'll call it whatever and. I always giggle and I always go, yeah, the monkey's back flipped over the moon. You got to hit it right, you know. And a lot of times it's not, I, I, I found that since I quit calling in contests, my, my calling vocabulary, if like, if I want to sit in a booth at a show, I can sit down and make all kinds of crazy goosey sounds and notes. But when I'm in the field, my vocabulary has went like this. It's just simple clucks and moans. And I change my pitch, cadence, and tempo more than I change to a certain specific note. And I found that a lot of times it's hitting them with a certain pitch or it's hitting them at a certain point where they can actually hear a call and recognize that that's a bird and turn and look to a spread and get their interest that way. So I'm not, you know, I've I've found and I tell people all the time, you do not need to be a champion caller to be able to call birds. You just got to be able to read them and know when to call and when not to call. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. I've never been on the stage. It wasn't something that appealed to me. I always admired guys like you that, that, that did it and were successful at it. And it was, I always felt like I could learn things from you that I could incorporate into my hunting, but I, the shrinking vocabulary, man, over the years, I've been in the same boat. It's like yeah. I don't use a lot of different calls and getting those birds' attention. It's and it's you know it's funny. It's a similar deal with elk. You can hear an elk bugle a lot further than he can hear you. Um, at least in in from what I've seen, um, you know you can hear an elk bugle an awful long ways away, and you try to respond to that, and he may not he may not hear you. Mm-hmm. And but getting yeah same deal getting their attention and getting them to to take a look is, is absolute key. But yeah, you know, that you said, see, what do you guys have over at R and T? What do you, you guys have anything new coming out this year? Any plans for anything for we're, goose we're calls? Work, yeah, we're working on a couple of goose calls. We've got a, a, a little um, lesser call that we're coming out with a new honker call. And then we're working on a, a flute because ah. what I said about the revolution, <laughs> you know, new style. It, it, hey, look, you know, I kind of started contest calling during the time when flutes were still really good. And I won several contests in that. And then I transitioned into the short read when they were, when Kelly powers won the world and I transitioned and then I won the world the year after that, that he did and, and went on to it. But we're starting to get into the short reads. They're not near as effective today as they were. So you got guys that are pulling out these tube calls now, and you got guys that are pulling out these flute calls and going old school on them. Um, so you know we're gonna we're gonna come out with that, and you know I think it, you were talking about contest calling. It's not for everybody, and I probably got into it for a different reason than some of the contest callers that are in there. And I I got into it. You know I saw Tim Grounds on that '94 Outlaw video, and before so a long time in the late '80s. I saw this guy named Sean Mann. I mean, you probably wouldn't recognize him today because he was a lot skinnier, and I can make fun of him because we're good friends. <laughs> we're good friends. But he's actually, you know, Sean and, and Tim were really the reasons I got into wanting to become a better goose caller. And, you know, and I saw I saw 
Sean on, I think it was Kurt Gowdy or something on his outdoor show, and he was blowing this long flute, you know. And I said, holy cow, that sounds, I mean, I've never heard, that sounds most like a goose out anything I've ever heard. And, sure. And when I got into it, I said, you know, I want to be able to say that I, I'm as good as these guys. It was never to say that I could beat them, you know. And it's like if you get into contest calling and you'll you'll realize that you you can win win contests and you're you're just calling judges you're calling people and it's what they want to hear on that day and you know I I can say that you know I beat Tim Grounds in a calling contest yeah but I'll I'll never be Tim Grounds you know <laughs> I I just I wanted to say that I could be as good as as those guys Tim Grounds and Sean Mann and that I never said that I wanted to be better than them because I mean I can't they're you know they're they're icons in the sport and. Yeah. Truth be told, I, I really had no, I had zero interest in going out and calling at the Worlds out in Eastern Maryland. Zero. No interest. And that's because it was always during goose season. Yep. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I, I would travel all over the Midwest to go. I mean, I'd drive 12 hours out to Lake Nicolette out in Minnesota to go blow in a, a goose calling contest that paid $500 for first place. And during the summer, but I would not do that during hunting season. And we were down in the short reads, you know, I started blowing the short read a year after powers one and, and, uh, I was doing really good. And I saw Sean, man, he was at a contest. He's like, this is your year. This is your time. You've got to go. And I'm like, ah, it's hunting season. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, whatever. You know, I mean, he's, I've always looked up to him. You know, he's always done, you know, the right things. And, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because he's, he's somebody I look up to and he wants me to go. And I, I was, I had to book tickets and I was late booking them going around. I'm like, all I can get, I can get coach class out, but first class back. That's all I can get. Cost me a little extra. I did that. I flew out I, on the way to the airport because it's hunting season. And my contest call was always, it's always different than the hunting call. They're just tuned sure. different. They're tuned to, tuned to please people. They're deeper, or mellow and on the way I packing for the deal. I can't find my contest call. I don't know where it is. I'm packing for I'm like, oh my gosh. So I'm a blowing a half breed all the whole season. Blowing a half breed hunting. Have not blown this hard, stiff, hard to blow, takes a lot of air contest call. On the way to the airport, I'm like, maybe one last place I can look. Open up my glove box. There it is. There's my contest call. <laughs> I go there I, in the parking lot of the hotel. I blow two routines in the parking lot of the hotel. And anybody that blows in contest knows that if you don't blow a really stiff contest call and practice with it, your lips and your cheeks get sore and they blow out and you got air bubbles and spit coming out the side. That started on me after two two routines in the parking lot and I quit. So then I went in Friday night. That night I went and blew the first two rounds, made the finals. And they blow the finals on Saturday, five callers, and they blew that. Um, and it's a good thing that there were no tiebreakers because I could not have held my air on the call. And they they went and announced the winners. It was me. And I was that was the first year I went, and I was like, oh, what just happened? Yeah. And uh, and then you know I won, and then I was like, well, now you got to go back and take another hunting season. So I went back the next year, and I got fifth place, and then. Then I didn't go back. Uh, I never went back again to call after that. I just, I basically retired from calling is what I did. Um, and I, I actually would have retired before I went to the world, but Sean's like, 
you got to go, you got to go. And I did. And I'm glad I did looking back on it, but. Oh, um, that's cool. That's a, that's a heck but of a. But I'd still, I'd still rather go hunting than blowing a contest any old day. Yeah. I, you know, I think, and, and where I grew up too, I was even further away from that stuff than you were. Um, growing up so far north and and being pretty remote up there uh-huh. it, but it was the same type oh, yeah. of deal. it was kind of like am i gonna am i gonna burn time to go contest call or am i gonna hunt yeah and i just decided i wanted to hunt more than i wanted to more than i wanted to be you know and for me call. yeah and for me the contest deals were a way for me to get better at my calling and to just immerse myself into waterfalling i mean it is if I'm into something, I'm both feet, you know, I'm, I'm after it. And it was just a way to do something in the summer to get myself around these other people and become a better caller. That's really what it was all about. And today, I mean, kids don't need to do that. You don't need to travel anywhere. You just get on YouTube and boom, bam, bam, bam. You can hear, you can hear this routine, that routine. You can watch this hunt. You know, you, you just, it's total immersion right from your couch anymore. That's, yeah, it's pretty amazing how, how that has evolved you know yeah the the amount of resources i remember i remember the you were talking about um in 2000 the video you put together um about calling and different things i i had a copy of that Mm -hmm. all those things where it was and and watched it and learned and practiced I'm 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 watching hockey uh-huh. We're doing, and there's a fight in Montreal and Philadelphia. Oh. So I'm kind of glancing up, glancing up. Yeah. Hey, man, uh, this whole COVID thing is the best thing to come out of it so far is uh, the hockey's back on. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah I, so sorry about that. Don't even get me started on COVID, man. Good yeah. grief. Uh, I'm no, at, least, at least Wyoming, like I said, I like to say we live under a rock out here. We, we're pretty well untouched. At one point, I think our county had more grizzly maulings this spring than we had COVID cases. Wow. But pretty crazy yeah. stuff. But yeah. what do you got coming up for hunts this fall? Well, good question. That is a work in progress. I've all but given up on uh, the – I just don't see the border being open until right. – prob. I'm guessing at least the first of the year. Um so that's out. And, man, you know, like I've been going to Canada forever. And everybody's, oh, you go to Canada because it's all a bunch of birds and it's easy. And not really. I mean, there's a lot of birds. They're not easy where we go. It's, you know, they, after the one day of getting hunted, um, they're pretty tough. And by and large, probably 80% of the birds we hunt in Manitoba are molt migrants. Sure. Um, but I love, I love going there. You know, I've been going there for 20-some years now to this spot. And I've seen little kids grow up to be big kids, and now they have little kids, and they're growing up to be big kids, and they're like family. I mean, I you know we see them for two weeks out of the year. We call it goose camp. We see them for two weeks out of the year, but I mean, I talk to some of them once, twice a week, if not more, you know. So it's like family. So that's that's what's hurting about going up, not being able to go up there, and what I'm missing most. Um, but uh, we've we've kind of got some stuff tentatively planned, but. You know, I don't know what these states are going to do. Um, you know, like New York, if you if you want to go there, you got to quarantine for 14 days if you're from XYZ state. Luckily, Michigan isn't on that, but I don't know if we'll go there yet. Um, we may do some more local hunting, I guess, than, than, than usual. North Dakota, I'm afraid, is just going to be a zoo. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of up in the air right now. Yeah, it's, I think a lot of people are in the same boat, you know, as as far as that goes. They don't they don't know, you know, guys that have been going to Canada, like you said, for a long time aren't going, and that kind of throws people yeah. for a loop, you know. And um, we're yeah. I've got a long time to think about it because we don't even open until for quite a <laughs> we don't have any early stuff, and honestly, our our birds don't show up really really good until late, and so it's. Yeah. Uh, we end up, we spend up most of the fall hunting big game when everybody else is wrecking geese and uh, ducks. And then we transition over, which eh, it's kind of nice. That's not, that's not a bad. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. I could see that being fun. Yeah. I, I don't even want to get, I don't even, I mean, I've been watching a few elk hunts on TV and on YouTube and man, I love the turkey hunt. And I, I mean, I just love to hunt and, and, being in the waterfall industry and filming and you, know, you got a camera and it's, it's, it's a job and you're, you know, you, you kind of, there's some stress involved and you got to produce, you got to do this and that. And, and, and some days it's, it, it'll, it'll, it'll suck a little bit of the fun out of it, you know? Uh, but you know, Turkey hunting, uh, you know, I can go, I can walk out the end of my driveway and I can jump in the woods. You know, it's, it's light by five 30 in the morning here during turkeys, so you know, I would get something right. north. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I can hunt for two hours and still be back in my office, you know, by, by eight o'clock and, uh, and just go sit by a tree. And if I hear one, I hear one, if I don't, I don't, but it's just, I mean, I love turkey hunting and they, everybody tells me that elk hunting is just like hunting gigantic turkeys. And it's know. similar. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt there's, there's definitely some similarities, um, with the way they respond to calls and, and some of the strategy um is similar but there there's a lot of differences too you know yeah. and, but it's yeah it's fun I just mean, to have that size of an animal to call them in to the point where you can feel them breathe and, oh, and you know them big bulls scream i mean i'm sitting here talking about it. i've never done it and the hair on my arm is raising up just thinking <laughs> about it you know i mean it's just yeah yeah and i, I, You'll I have wouldn't to even need, i wouldn't even need to i don't even have like just to shoot one I don't even need to shoot one. Just to have one that close would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It I, you is. know, like turkey hunting. Do it. I still, I mean, I, we're on a countdown. It's just a matter of days, and we'll be in the woods chasing them around. So, I, you know, the, here, here in Elk Bugle, like, you know, I'm sitting in the woods in the morning turkey hunting, and, I mean, I hear, a, 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 you know, that gobbler fire up, and I giggle every time, the first time okay. I hear one yeah. in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's just cool. The stuff you see. You know, the stuff you see when you're in the woods, you just, I mean, there's no, there's, there's, there's nothing that compares to it. And you definitely don't get it sitting on the couch. That's for sure. No, you know, you only I, get so many sunrises and you shouldn't better not miss many. Jim Ronquest and I were talking about the exact same thing. And he said yeah. something very similar, you know, if you're not out there, if you don't go, you don't know. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's super true, but. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a close up question that I've asked in every single person. And we didn't talk about ducks hardly at all, but I have a feeling you're just as ate up with ducks as, as most oh, waterfowlers, yeah. you know, I, and it doesn't matter what species I, it'd be long tailed ducks, wood ducks. I know it. Me too. Shovelers I, are my favorite. And everybody, <laughs> that's the other green head. The other yep. green head. Yep. They need love. Oh. But if you had to pick one thing, one waterfall hunt to do 
for the rest of your life. You can only have one. What's it going to be? As far as location or type or type location. Uh-huh. So I ask guys and, and, and a lot of the duck guys are saying mallards and flooded timber. That's the only that if they can only have one, that's what they're going to do. Oh, uh, not me. Not flooded timber for mallards. I, you, uh, probably, probably, and this, this is a Canada goose guy saying this, but probably buck brush for ducks because you got a chance to shoot. And look, you grew up in Michigan and you know, um, we aren't mallard pierce we are duck opportunists absolutely you know um it doesn't matter if it's buffalo heads on on the saint mary's river or if it's you know old squaw on lake michigan you know redheads and cans on lake saint Clair, you know mallards in in the fields or wood ducks in the sloughs I, I just you know i'll shoot it all and that's what i you know people make fun of me for shooting at one time down there in Arkansas, I shot a, a my my six bird limit of three blue wing teal, picked them out, three blue wing teal and three shovelers, and I was high stepping whatever, and and the guys that were with me, they all they wanted to shoot were mallards, and they shot like four mallards total, and I shot six ducks, and I'm jumping around, and yeah. like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, you don't understand this. From where I well, from where I come from, we are duck opportunists, and this is like the ultimate hat trick in waterfowling for me. Yep. Yep. We get birds through Wyoming that you never saw in Michigan. I mean, ever. And there's some birds back there that we don't get out here. You know, I haven't seen a black duck in, in, in 12 years, you know, pretty regularly. And and wood ducks are pretty scarce. You you see a few, but not many, but you know, all kinds of teal, um, and widgeon oh my goodness do we get flights of widgeon oh, through? Wow. yeah and just fun just fun stuff but yeah brush ducks huh i i'm with you i like it i like yeah. it sean thank you for your time man i really appreciate it i had a great time visiting with you yeah thanks man you're a wealth of knowledge i i look forward to bringing this out so people can people can listen to it and enjoy it great have a good night yeah we'll talk to you later